Take your Bibles and turn them to the book of Colossians. We started Colossians on Sunday, January 1st with the goal of preaching the book in 10 weeks. And it's been 8, 9, 9 will be next week, and we're finishing chapter 1 today. So it's going to take us a little longer than 10 weeks, but I am okay with that. But I do want to pick up where we left off last week and uh, consider together a little bit of an examination of, of Paul's reflection upon his ministry uh, to the church there in Colossae. And last week we saw the reality that God has done a miraculous work. And that miraculous work is the reconciliation of those who were far off from him, right? And so uh, in, in our, our text together last week, we saw where Paul really zeroed in and went from the general idea of reconciliation in Christ to some of the specifics of this reconciliation in Christ. He spoke to the reality of them being brought into relationship with God through the work of Christ. And having reconciled the Colossian believers to himself, these believers now have a hope that they had not known prior to their reconciliation. You see, and that's a reality, even in, in, in our equip class, and Corey's been talking about this, uh, he started last week with just kind of talking through what is the gospel, and began today helping us to build uh, our, our testimony, and a, and a part of that testimony is a, a recognition that at one time, you were afar off from God, and because of who Christ is and what Christ has done, when you believe in that, you are brought near to God, right? And so when that happens, when that takes place, part of what happens is when you are brought near to God, you are given a hope that you previously did not have. Right? We live in a world where a lot of people have a lot of ideas about God and being right with God and, 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 and what God's word would teach us, which is what's most important, not our opinions or ideas, but what God's word would teach us is that we are separated and we are afar off from God, but God in Christ made reconciliation or made it possible to be brought back to God and to realize or, or, or come to anticipate all of the fulfillment of the promises of God. And that is the hope of the believer, right? That this is not all there is, that there is more after this life, and that the pinnacle of the more is that you get Jesus. I, I don't want to pop anybody's bubble this morning but if the idea that when this life ends, you get Jesus isn't satisfactory for you, then you're going to be disappointed, right? And so Paul has worked through, we worked through last week where Paul talked about what God had done in Christ in bringing these people back to himself, and as he continues this letter to the church in Colossae, he now brings into focus the fact that God has chosen him, that is Paul, to be a minister of the gospel that is the source of their hope. So they have a hope, as we've talked about, it comes from the fact that they've been reconciled by the gospel, and now Paul is going to reflect on his role or his opportunity um, to be used by God in, in ministering this gospel. This gospel that Paul has been called to as a minister is something relatively new for the Colossian believers. It's not as new to us. It's been about 2,000 years since this was written. But as he writes this letter to the Colossian believers, the gospel as we know it from God's word is a relatively new understanding. In fact, Paul even refers to this gospel as a mystery, he says this mystery has been hidden for the ages and now it has been made known to them. And I don't know about you and maybe it's just the cynic in me, but when I hear people talk about mysteries or keys, things of this nature, the secrets, my ears perk up, right? Because once again, we live in a world now where uh, everybody is searching for the unknown, we said that reality last week. Remember we talked about Paul says that when you're far off from Christ, you're an alien, 
right? We, our culture is kind of obsessed with aliens. You know, everything that's in the sky now is some sort of something that needs to be researched and sought out. And who is it? And is it an extraterrestrial life? And, you know, I, I don't know if you guys have seen these satellites, I guess, the Starlink internet satellites that are going through the sky all the time. Everybody's freaking out. There's a level of obsession that we have about the things we don't know. Now, in the church, I want to pause for just a second and say, please, please, please stop searching for the unknown while you neglect the known. We try to figure out every mystery under the sun. We try to unsolve every riddle, or I guess solve every riddle. We want to know everything. That, like, okay, I'm just going to say this. I've probably said this before, Okay. Stop trying to understand the book of Revelation if you don't understand the Old Testament. Not because I don't want you to understand the book of Revelation. You should search out the book of Revelation. You should seek to know what is happening. But I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to give you a little insight if you know this. The book of Revelation is really hard to understand. It's future It's stuff that hasn't happened yet. And what's amazing to me is how we will search out the mysteries, if you will, of the book of Revelation without the source of knowing how they unfold or or, or, or knowing where to get the information that makes sense of what we read there in the book of Revelation, right? And so in the church today, man, we are so guilty of neglecting what is plain and simple while we try to figure out the difficult. Brothers and sisters, just stick to what is plain plain. Stick to what is clear. Stick to what, look, we read it and it makes sense and God has communicated in his word and we can know it. As we do that, then we move into the the deeper issues of the text, right? And this is not something that you should be thinking. I can't believe that the, the preacher from the pulpit would say that. That's literally what the writer of the book of Hebrews says. Start with milk and when you can digest milk, eat food. Anybody ever raised a baby? It's the same premise. When your baby's born, you don't give it a steak. It lives on milk. And as it gets older, you introduce these more complex things into the diet of your child. So it is as a believer. Grow in your understanding of the elementary things of princi- uh, the elementary principles of Scripture in order that you could build on them. But when I hear the word mystery, that was just a little diatribe for a second. When I hear the word mystery, my ears perk up. But I want to encourage you as we see here Paul use this word mystery, it doesn't have to be a fanciful thing. It doesn't have to be something that we should steer clear of because it's difficult to sort through and figure out because it's actually not difficult at all. As I've said, it's not a a fanciful thing. What Paul is communicating is just simply that prior to the Colossian people he's writing to, the generations before them didn't have the gospel. They didn't know the gospel as it's been presented to the Colossians. It was a mystery, but now this mystery has been revealed to them. In other words, what you didn't know before, you know now. You have the ability to know now. And so it's not, again, it's not a fanciful thing. It's not something that we have to try to solve or uncover. It's just simply that it wasn't known before, but it is known now. This is different than the mystery religions that are unknowable and only for a select few, which is a part of what uh, Paul was dealing with and the church in Colossae was dealing with, these you know, mystic religions and things that were only for people with esoteric or the idea of special knowledge and understanding. And Paul's not saying any of that. Paul's saying, you didn't know the gospel before. It hadn't been revealed, but in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and his, his, after his resurrection and his ministry for 40 days and then his ascension, now we know the gospel. We didn't before, but we do now. That's the mystery. And the mystery of the gospel is for all people. It is not exclusive in the sense that it's only for some people, that only some people have the ability to understand it. But what is exclusive, not the gospel itself, but the means by which the mystery of the gospel is realized is exclusive. There is one way. There is one way to come to know, understand, and believe the mystery that is the gospel. That's Jesus Christ. That's the word of God that reveals it to us. 
This gospel, the the message of it is be reconciled to God. There is only one way to be reconciled to God. Jesus, it's not your good works. It's not your gifts. It's not your serving. It's not your doing. It's not your helping. It's not your trying. It's Jesus. That's the only means whereby this mystery is understood and reconciliation takes place. And this morning, Paul focuses upon his ministry to make this happen or to allow this to happen in the church at Colossae. But it all hinges upon one reality, the greatness of the gospel of Christ and the hope of, the Christ, and the hope of Christ for and in the believer. Any, any person who ministers should do so only out of the greatness of the gospel. I'm not special, right? I hope you gather on Sunday morning to hear from the word of God more than you do to hear from me. If somebody else is preaching up here next week, are you as excited to gather? Do you treasure the word of God? I don't want to sound self-serving. Or do you treasure me sharing it? The gospel, the word of God is what is great and to be treasured. The minister has a responsibility to communicate it the right way, and that's part of what we're going to talk about this morning with Paul. But Paul's desire wasn't to be great. Paul's desire was to make the greatness of the gospel known. And so it ought to be with any minister of the gospel. And so let's read together, beginning in verse 24, our text for today as Paul reflects upon his ministry to the Colossians. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Father, I thank you for the tremendous privilege that it is to be a minister of your gospel. And this is a tall task and not one that should be entered into lightly and God, this morning as we do, as we do every single Sunday, we gather together and we open your word and we look into it. I pray, God, that you would uh, just allow our hearts to hear from your word more than from me. But help me, God, to be faithful, to communicate your word in a way that would rightly represent it, where truth would be shared, where truth could be understood and known And um, God, as you continue to work, we thank you for the work that you've done in the church history and past. And Father, we thank you for the fact that the gospel has been made known, that there's a gospel to be called a minister of, that there's the good news of reconciliation to you through Jesus. And so, Father, this morning, as we consider just the realities of ministry and the Christian life, God, for all of us as we walk it, may we heed the words of our call to worship in the book of Hebrews. God, may we fix our eyes upon Jesus. May we look to him. May we consider his sufferings, God, for our sake. And may you do mighty, mighty things for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. And so I want to give you just two things this morning as we look at these few verses here in Colossians chapter 1. And the first thing that I want you to see are Paul's experiences in proclaiming glory. So that's what he's talking about. He's, he's been entrusted as this minister to the gospel, that is, the mystery of Christ in you, this hope of glory. And Paul, he then shares with them experiences as such. What, is his, what has his life been like as a minister of the gospel? It's very interesting. In verse 24 He tells him right off the bat, as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he has experienced suffering. He has suffered 
Now, it's important to note here that as Paul mentions his suffering, filling what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, he is not saying that Christ's sufferings at Calvary were insufficient and needed to be added to in any way. So Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I'm filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And a lot of people have used this verse to demonstrate, or attempted to use this verse, to demonstrate that the death of Christ was insufficient. Because Paul has said that he counts his sufferings as the means of completing or filling up what Christ lacked. But that's not the case at all. The NLT encapsulates what Paul is saying here very well. The NLT reads this way. I am glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. You see, Christ had to suffer for sinful man to be reconciled to the Father and for the church to be birthed in Acts chapter 2. This had to take place. The Messiah had to suffer and die and be raised to life. And the truth is that identifying with Christ as part of the church is going to bring suffering for the believer. I don't know if anybody ever told you that or not. I don't know if you ever considered the reality that when you profess faith in Jesus Christ and you said, I understand what it means to be reconciled to God because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I don't know if anybody ever told you that part of what you're embarking on is the life of suffering for Jesus. Not because his sufferings were insufficient, but because why would our lives be any different than his? reality is they're, they're not. Identifying with Christ and identifying as part of the church of Christ is going to bring suffering. But because of what that suffering represents, Paul says, I mean, it's almost insane, isn't it? Now I rejoice in my sufferings. Paul literally finds joy in the fact that he suffers for Christ. Why? Because, brothers and sisters, I want you to understand something. If you get to suffer for the cause of Christ, man, you're suffering for what matters most. Paul's perspective of his sufferings, again, I'm not saying we should be looking for sufferings. I'm not saying that we should go out and try to bring sufferings upon ourselves. I'm not saying that we necessarily have to enjoy our sufferings when we go through them. But the reality is that the perspective on our sufferings makes a big difference. He suffered, and out of my identification with him, I too suffer. That tells you something about where you're at with him. And, and, and Paul, he says, I, I, I count it incredible, magnificent. I rejoice over the fact that I get to be associated with Jesus Christ suffering because of my own. This is kind of crazy, isn't it? To, to come to the place where we believe that as we talk about Christ in us, the hope of glory, that that includes suffering? And Paul's rejoicing over his suffering. And I think it's important for us to consider Paul's life up to this point. Need I remind you where he is writing this letter to the Colossians? He's in a Roman prison. And he's not in a Roman prison because he broke the law. He's not in a Roman prison because he betrayed Caesar. He's in a Roman prison because he preached the gospel. And this is where he writes this letter to a group of believers. And so not only is he writing this letter currently from prison, but let's consider some of what he records for us in some of his other letters about his life. In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three to 25, Paul recounts suffering um, that would identify really as some of the most severe suffering short of death. He's been in prison. He's been flogged. You remember that's what they did to Jesus? When they essentially tied him to a whipping post and they took a whip and it would have the strands of leather that came out of the end of it. And in the end of those strands of leather, typically there was nine of them. This device was called a cat of nine tails. And in the ends of each of those nine tails would often be pieces of bone or metal 
right? Again, we, we associate this picture oftentimes, sometimes, with Jesus being beaten prior to his crucifixion. Paul tells us they actually did this to him twice. And typically, you would get 40 beatings when you would get flogged. But Paul says, I got 39 as a show of mercy. This is just a little bit of what Paul has been exposed to. Or what he's experienced. He's been exposed to death again and again in many ways. Beaten with rods. Pelted with stones. But that isn't even all that he suffered. Just consider what we see him recount for himself in the book of Acts. He was the recipient of verbal opposition and abuse routinely. This is the one that I think if we're really trying to you know, follow Jesus, we, as of now, are most likely to experience in our culture, and our context, in the world that we live in. Verbal opposition and verbal abuse, mockery, right? Stupid, I can't believe you would follow Jesus, right? I can't believe he's dead like everybody else. The Bible was written by a bunch of random people. It doesn't even have a, a, a similar message throughout it. It's just written by men. It's not trustworthy. It's not reliable. You're fools for following, believing that Jesus was born of a virgin. You're even more foolish to believe that a dead man came alive. You foolish Christians, I think that's probably, as of now, about the extent of what we will experience. Around the world, there's much more. But in our context, as a rule of thumb, the suffering that we... And I don't want to minimize that either, right? Like, that's a real thing. And sometimes it can be tough to navigate how to deal with opponents of Jesus Christ and the gospel when they come at us that way. But we shouldn't be surprised if and when it happens. Paul was accused falsely. He was physically removed from cities. There were attempts to take his life. We've talked about the fact that he was beaten. He was betrayed by other believers. That one really stings, don't it? Fellow brothers and sisters in Christ betrayed Paul. Scott McKnight in his commentary on Colossians submits that Paul connects his suffering to Christ's suffering in no more poetic way than in 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. Listen to the words. Paul says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, is preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that, also, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This saying is trustworthy. Trust, excuse me. This saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we also live with him. If we endure, we also will reign with him. Paul goes on to say, if we deny, he will deny us. But notice the relationship that Paul fleshes out here in writing to Timothy, a young pastor in a very difficult place, Ephesus, and connecting his sufferings for Christ with the sufferings of Christ. And so he's clearly expressing that his suffering is for the sake of Christ, and it's what should be expected for those who are following Christ. Sitting here this morning, none of us have any idea what the extent of our suffering for Jesus will be in this life. We just don't know. We can't possibly know what we will be called to in the future. We, we can't know that. But Paul goes to great lengths to demonstrate what it looks like to rejoice for being counted worthy to suffer with Christ. And Paul here, he's fleshing out that he has suffered the sake of the gospel, and for those who have believed it. And a second reality for Paul and his experiences is, is he proclaims the hope of glory. There's a, a reality of that that is extreme toil and struggle. Jump down to verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. We'll talk about, we'll flesh out what he means, what it is that he's toiling and struggling for in just a minute. But this was a part of his ministry to the church at Colossae. What exactly does he toil and struggle for? The goal that we will see in just a moment in more detail. But in short, 
Paul toils so that the body of Christ can mature to be like Christ. I toil and I struggle to the end that those who identify with Jesus will be mature in Christ. It's imperative that we not just understand that Paul toiled, but that we see what enables him in his toil and in his struggling. How does he do these things well? By Christ powerfully working within him. That's how he toils. As a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ to and for the people of Colossae, Paul has experienced the goodness of God, the grace of God, the the power of God working in him to toil and to struggle. And as Paul's goal is to present people mature in Christ, he no doubt needs the power of Christ at work in him because it's a difficult task. Toiling and struggling to see the church presented mature in Christ is difficult. But Paul says that he struggles and he toils to this end. And it almost seems self-serving of me to examine Paul and what he's saying here. Because like Paul, I have been called and entrusted to be a minister of the gospel. And so I pray that you know my heart as we talk for just a few moments about the toil and the struggle of presenting people mature in Christ. Pastoring people is hard. It's not a sob song. I don't want anybody to feel bad for me or any other minister of the gospel. But contrary to what a lot of people think, I don't just work for an hour on Sunday. People literally say to me, what do you do during the week? Not necessarily in the church, I just mean in general. They say, well, you preach on Sunday for an hour, but what do you do during the week? When do you think I prepare to preach, right? Like, like it doesn't just, I didn't just open the Bible and know what was happening. There's studying, there's, there's preparation. But I'm going to be 100% honest with you, preaching is the easy part. Preaching is the easy part of pastoring. I don't say that to be arrogant or to boast or to be proud or to come across that way. But again, I believe that God has gifted me with the ability to communicate. I don't always do it great. I try. I try to communicate well. But at the end of the day, for me, preaching is the easy part. Teaching is the easy part. Pastoring people is the hard part. Loving people through life. Man, life is hard for y'all. You think I don't get that? Because life's hard for anybody who's trying to follow Jesus. And when you've been entrusted as a minister, like, not because I don't want to live life with people, but sometimes it would be great if the extent of the ministry was just preaching, because it would be a lot easier. But me standing up here preaching for an hour, let's not call it 40 minutes, let's be real, right? Preaching for an hour on a Sunday morning is not what it takes to present people mature in Christ. You got to toil and you got to struggle. You got to live life. You got to be in the muck, in the mire with people. You know, person A might call on Monday, but what person A doesn't realize when they call on Monday is that person B called on Tuesday, and person C called on Wednesday, and then person B called again on Thursday. It's not a sad, it's not a, a sad song or a sob story. But when Paul says it's a toil and a struggle to proclaim the gospel and to present people mature in Christ, oh, I understand what he says. One of the greatest struggles as a pastor is trying to desperately help people to see the reality of Christ in them, the hope of glory. Not minimizing what we deal with in our lives, right? We, we can't do that. That's a, there's a reality we're living here, but as a follower of Jesus, we're not living for here. And it's so easy to get stuck here 
and lose sight of that. And that's why our call to worship this morning in, in Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Because in this life, you will struggle. You will suffer for Jesus. And you, it may look different. You will have to toil. You will have to strive. You will have to fix your eyes on Jesus because that may be all that you have. And one of the hardest realities of pastoring is trying to help people see that. Because sometimes I'm going to level with you. When all we have to do is fix our eyes on Jesus, it doesn't change what we're experiencing. And that can make things really, really difficult. But when you try and you try and you try to get people to see the reality of Christ in them that is the hope of glory, and they don't see it and they don't understand, it's it's reality, right? And honestly, it's, it's difficult helping people. It's not as difficult. And this is what Paul is encapsulating here. Right? We can have a conversation about the gospel, okay? And you can see your need for Jesus. You can understand being reconciled to God, and you could be reconciled to God. That's great, and that's a good thing. But that is much less difficult than helping people to see that after salvation in Christ, he still has ramifications upon your life. The minister of the gospel doesn't toil and struggle to get you to pay a, pray a prayer so that you can have arrived, Because Paul doesn't say that, does he? He says, I know you're up against it, Colossae. I know you guys are being bombarded from all sides. And I know that people are putting unfair expectations on you. And I know that, that people who teach wrong things are saying, you need to do this and you need to do that. And I know that it's not fair and I know that it's not right. And as much as I want you to fix your eyes on the future, I need you to understand, Jesus is still relevant right now. He does make a difference in your life today. When we lose sight of the fact that Christ's death, burial, and resurrection plays a part in our day-to-day, everyday life, when we lose sight of that and suffering enters into our lives, what happens? I'm out. See you, Jesus. Because I didn't know that this was part of it. You didn't change my circumstances. In fact, they got worse. Now I'm suffering. Forget it, man. I'm out of here. Because we've reduced Jesus to get, get saved, get saved, get saved. But Paul says that the goal of the minister of the gospel is to see people presented mature in Christ. Not a baby, but mature. Not a baby, but mature. And when we lose sight of these things as followers of Christ, we lose sight of the reality of Christ in us day after day after day, and suffering comes in, the consequences are not good. Discernment is lacking in our churches today, and that leads to confusion. And this is why Paul has written this letter to the Colossians, to correct the error that they were encountering about Jesus. People were teaching wrong things about Jesus. And so Paul, in his desire to teach the right things about Jesus, experiences suffering. Suffers for proclaiming the hope of glory. But see, Paul was willing to struggle because the goal was worth it. The goal is worth it. Paul's struggles and toils, they pointed to the value and they pointed to the worth of the gospel that he struggled and suffered for. The second thing I want you to see this morning is his goal for proclaiming the hope of glory. And in its simplest form, Paul's goal was to help people know Jesus and grow to maturity in Christ. It's what it was all about. People coming to Jesus and then mature in Christ. Notice verse 25. He says, as he speaks of this becoming a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The goal is to make the word of God fully known. This is the primary goal or purpose of Paul's stewardship from Christ. To be given a stewardship is the idea of being given the responsibility or administration over something. 
And so Paul, we understand in light of that, has been given the responsibility of making God's word fully known. The stewardship that has been entrusted to him from God is to teach people the gospel. To teach them what God's word says and teaches. And it's not just the gospel, right? But that's a big part of it. Because this includes, but is not limited to this mystery, that he moves into describing in verse 26, which we've touched on this. So he wants to make God fully known, that is, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. You see, the gospel, as you read the New Testament, has always been for the Jew first and then the Gentile. But Paul was personally commissioned by God to be a missionary to the Gentiles. We see this in Acts chapter 9. We actually referenced it this morning in Equip class. And from that point on, from being on the road to Damascus and encountering Jesus, from that point on, Paul gave his life to sharing the truth of God's good news in Christ to the Gentiles. Again, Gentile is anybody who is not Jewish by heritage. But just telling people about the gospel isn't the end of the goal for Paul. He doesn't want people just to know stuff. I think I said this this morning in our men's group downstairs when we were meeting, and I know I've said it up here a number of times. The Bible was not given to us so that we could just know stuff. It's not about knowledge. It's not about just having the ability to answer a question or to turn to a certain page or to reference a certain thing. When we talk about the mystery hidden in prior ages and generations, the gospel, it's not about knowing stuff. It's about believing the stuff that you know and it being evidenced in how you live. That's how you know you believe the gospel. You live it out. If you don't live out the gospel, why would you why would you profess to know it? If you don't live it out, why do you need to know it? Because if it's not significant enough that you would live your life for it, if it's not significant enough that it's done, because here's the reality. If God has really done what he said he did in Christ, and you claim to believe that, brothers and sisters, this has to change your life. It has to. It can't not. God took on flesh, lived a perfect life, was killed for it, but that's not the end of the story. He came back to life. And he came back to life as a demonstration that he was exactly who he said he was and that he accomplished what he said he came to accomplish. And that when you believe that, you can have new life in God. You can be reconciled and have a relationship with God through Christ. This has to change your life. You mean you get to have a relationship with the God of the universe? You see, it's not just about knowing stuff. Paul didn't desire that the Colossians would just know some things. He desired that they would live them out. And so he says in verse 28, notice, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Listen, if you don't live out the gospel, you are not maturing in Christ. And some of y'all, I'm going to level with you, have professed faith in Christ for a really long time and are still very immature in Christ. Because we're not maturing. It doesn't happen automatically. And so we gotta, we got to understand what Paul is communicating here. God's word isn't given so that we could know stuff. It's so that we could learn. And in learning, we could know God. And in knowing God, we can understand what he's done and that our lives could be oriented around it. Yeah, I'm sorry. I do believe that God's word teaches that his desire is that those who profess faith in him would live their lives for his glory, not their own. Our lives aren't about us. They're about him. And so Paul, because he wants people to live by what God's word says, he's, he, he, he records for he tells us, he says, we proclaim the hope of Christ. We warn people and we teach people so that they could mature. 
Paul here is warning or admonishing his hearers. To admonish or warn is to advise someone concerning the consequences of some happening or action. So we might say Paul is writing and saying, if you continue in this course, this is what's going to happen. That's a warning, right? Again, we understand this. You have kids. Everybody's got kids, and you always tell them when they're little. There's a number of things we say, don't do this. Don't touch the stove. Why? Because you get burned. Don't put anything in the electrical outlets. Why? Because you get shocked. Okay? And Paul is warning the Colossians here of the dangers of not maturing. When you stay an immature follower of Jesus, and again, I don't want anybody to get all upset and not hear what, or hear what I'm not saying about mature and immature. It's not a slight, it's just a reality. When you trusted Christ, you were a baby Christian. And you may still be a baby Christian. When you trusted Christ, maybe you started maturing and you're a mature Christian. Look, this is not, it's not a slight on anybody, it's just a reality. It's what God's word would teach us, right? And so as we grow, as we look into God's word, the, the warning that he's giving us here, Paul is giving us, is that as if we're not maturing, we're going to fall victim to the things that seem to uh, you know, oppose us or Christianity. Right? We already talked about struggling. If we're not maturing, we fall victim to struggling by walking away. If we're not maturing, we fall victim to deceitful schemes. We don't, if we don't know God's word, we can be convinced by a lot of things that aren't God's word. So we must be maturing. So Paul's warning and he's teaching. People need to be taught. Paul doesn't just say, don't do this or do that. Instead, he teaches and he teaches as he warns. And his teaching centered upon, as we have seen, the truth of the gospel and how it transforms a life when a person believes it. The full counsel of God's word must be taught. And from the teaching comes the opportunity to warn folks. As God's word is taught, we get to, to share and learn about the dangers of deviating from it. The dangers of remaining immature. And in the larger context of the letter, Paul is warning those in Colossae to adhere to God's word and not the outward pressure to conform to the outside ideas and opinions. In short, he says, I've been entrusted with this gospel, and so now we teach it and we warn people, you've professed this faith, grow in it. Grow in it. I'm going to tell you something else this morning that you need to know. It is your responsibility to grow. It is not my responsibility to grow you. It is not your growth group leader's responsibility to grow you. You have a role in growing spiritually. Right after Christ's role in it, you have the primary responsibility We must be growing because, again, if we're not, we're tossed to and fro. We're easily deceived. Being mature or complete is the goal. It's a tough goal. Let's not minimize that reality. But it is the goal nonetheless. God's word doesn't say, well, it's really hard to be mature in Jesus, so just try. No, no. God's word says your goal is maturity in Christ. And just as much as it is the minister of the gospel's desire to toil and struggle with and for you that you would be presented mature, you must toil and struggle for yourself to be presented mature. You see, the whole Christian life points ahead to the future realization of the hope of Christ in you. If you know Christ, he's in you, okay? But you, don't real, you can't cognitively realize that now. That's one day to be realized. But if you do know and understand that you have the hope of Christ in you, I also want you to know and understand this morning, everything in this life will push back against the hope of Christ that you have. 
everything in this world and everything in this life will try to, to, to veer you off of the course of maturing in Christ. The moment that you confess that you see your need for Christ and you turn from your sin and believe in him for salvation, this world will throw everything at you to upend your confession. And this is why Paul labored and toiled for the Colossians. And this hopefully is the reason why pastors today label, labor and toil for the, the, the local bodies that they shepherd. But as we've said, as much as leaders labor and toil, we must understand that there is a responsibility on the individual who professes Christ to grow to maturity in Christ. So I'm going to close with this. I'm going to give you a few things. Number one, know this. Following Christ will include suffering. Right? We've already touched on this. Your identification with Jesus will bring suffering into your life. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow. It may not be till later. It may not be till down the road. It may not be until you prioritize things uh, that deserve priority over other things and people ridicule you for no longer doing what you used to do, for having different priorities. It may not be today. It may not be tomorrow, but it, it, it's going to come if you, if you follow Christ. It could be ridicule. It could be physical harm. If any of you this morning sitting here that profess Christ as Savior ever considered the reality that you might be harmed physically for your identification with Jesus. I'm not telling you that you will be. But we might be. We might suffer physically because of our identification with Jesus. This requires a growth towards Christian maturity. So number one, again, remember, following Christ will include suffering. Secondly, following Christ is a stewardship. We talked about a stewardship is a, is a responsibility. You are the administrator over something. And, and following Christ and, and, and being given the gospel and professing faith with it, you are now a steward of what God has entrusted to you. You are now a steward or a manager of the most precious commodity known to man, the gospel. And believers must manage it well. Know it, love it, and live it. Thirdly, following Christ requires that we be admonished and taught the truths of God's word. You have a responsibility to be taught God's word, right? Not just from me on Sunday. You have the ability, assuming that, and again, I'm not being insensitive or crass when I say this, assuming you have the ability to read, you have the responsibility for yourself to pick up God's word and engage with it. And if you can't read, there's audio Bibles everywhere you turn around. And we have the responsibility to be admonished and taught the truths of God's word. Fourthly, following Christ will require those who follow him to allow him to work within them. If you try to follow Christ in your strength, you won't follow him for very long. And so he has to be at work in you. And how is it that he is at work in you? You see, it all, it's like a lot of pieces of the same puzzle. How is it that Christ is at work in you? Well, it's as you learn as you are admonished and as you are taught the truths of God's word. You're not surprised by suffering when you encounter it, when you know that it's coming. But when you don't know that God's word says, look, you're probably going to suffer for following Jesus, and then suffering comes in, it, it tends to shake our worlds, right? And so we must submit ourselves to him. We must know his word we must be in fellowship with him. We must be in fellowship with other believers. Living the Christian life together. And as he works, following Christ will require those following him to toil and struggle. Because as we've said, everything in this world will try to keep you from toiling and struggling and following Christ. 
But here's the reality of all of this at the end of the day. Whether you're talking about the toil and struggle of the minister of the gospel to the body or the individual toil and struggle of yourself for your Christian life, I want you to understand something. It will all be worth it when the hope of Jesus Christ in you is realized when you stand face to face with him. And I'll be honest, some of you may be sitting here this morning thinking, yes, that's great, but I don't feel like that helps me today. I feel like that's not changing my circumstances and the situation that I'm trying to navigate in and maybe the suffering that I'm enduring. You're right. But it can give perspective to the struggling and the suffering and the toiling that you may be enduring. Because after all, the admonition of Scripture is to fix our eyes upon Jesus and consider the one who struggled and suffered for us. I don't know what you're up against today, and I don't want to minimize that. But I'm going to just try to kind of put it out there. It probably pales in comparison to the suffering of Jesus. Again, I don't, I don't want to minimize what anybody's going through or experiencing. But when you identify with the sufferings of Jesus Christ and you live with the perspective of knowing and understanding that Christ in you, that is the hope of glory, is what awaits you at the end of this life, it changes things. Because if God's word is true, and I believe it is, and if you profess faith in the gospel in some way you believe it is, then what that means is no matter what we face in this life, when we get to the end of it and we see Jesus, it will have been worth it. I don't know what it is. Not for you, not for me. I don't know what tomorrow holds for me any more than I know what it holds for you. And sometimes one of the Biggest fears I have when I teach and preach God's word is when I have to say things like I'm getting ready to say right now. As much as I don't know what tomorrow holds for me, I do know that no matter what it is, if God sees me through it, when I stand face to face with him, it will have been worth it. Do you believe that? Whatever your toil, your struggle, your suffering, I don't know. But if God sees you through it in this life, when you stand face to face with him, your focus isn't going to be the struggle and suffering that you had here. Your focus is going to be the hope of Jesus in you realized. Following Christ will be worth it when you stand before him. So rejoice no matter what comes your way. Persevere through the struggle. Grow through his word and allow him to work through you that you will one day realize the fullness of your hope in Christ.